Hear God's word from Mark chapter 8, verses 1 through 21. In those days, when again a great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from far away. And his disciples answered him, how can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them, how many loaves do you have? They said, seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground. And he took the seven loaves and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. And they set them before the crowd and they had a few small fish. And having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people. And he sent them away. And immediately, immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. Now, they had forgotten to bring bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, Watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes do you not see? And having ears do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the five thousand, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, Twelve. And the seven for the four thousand, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Have you ever experienced deja vu? A moment that you thought you had lived, you feel like you were living again. Did you feel that way at the beginning of this reading? When Jesus went from healing a deaf and mute man last week, now to feeding the crowd. I thought he fed the crowd already, and he did. This is the second of his great feedings of the, of the crowd. In this, our passage, which seems to be deja vu, it has, has critical emphasis for the disciples. And it comes at a critical moment. Here, verse 21, is the end of of the first section in Mark's gospel. So far, Jesus has been ministering in the region of, of Galilee, and he has been focusing on proclaiming the gospel to Jews and to Gentiles. His next phase is going to be a journey toward Jerusalem, and then the last section of the book is going to be his time in Jerusalem. So far, Jesus doing his ministry in Galilee, he's wrapping up. We see... He is advancing the kingdom, recently especially, in the region of the Gentiles. 
The disciples have been witnesses to this. And they will be the recipients of his specific teaching and a special teaching in the next section. Because at the end of this section, they still don't seem to get it. The people who have traveled with him and seen these incredible signs and wonders, Jesus at the end still says, do you not yet understand? The disciples are, sometimes they seem to be getting it, but other times they're tottering on the brink of unbelief, just like the Pharisees do not believe. So today we'll be looking at the Gentile blessing here with the feeding of the 4,000. And then we'll look at the Jewish opposition that comes with the Pharisees in verses 11 through 13. And then we'll look at Jesus's warning in verses 14 through 21. Our very last part will be to take that warning and to apply it to our own hearts and our own lives. So let's look at the Gentile blessing in the first 10 verses. Bread is a really important motif here in this passage. I don't know if you notice, it comes up in the first story and in the third story, the mention of leaven. Every time the word loaves is mentioned, it's actually the same word as bread. So this word for bread and for loaves is coming up quite often in this uh, passage. It's in verse 4, 5, 6, 14, 15, 16, 17, and 19. So these stories are tied together thematically with this bread. Now this story, again, very similar to the feeding of the 5,000, and that's intentional on Mark's part. Remember the last time that bread was mentioned after the feeding of the 5,000, the last time it was mentioned was when the Syrophoenician woman came, bowed down to Jesus' feet and said that even the crumbs that fall from the children's table are for the Gentiles. She took hold of that blessing. And here we see Jesus feeding the 4,000 in a Gentile region. He is doing what he had done for the Jews. He is now doing specifically for Gentiles in a Gentile region. The distribution of the children's bread, which had fallen to the Syrophoenician woman, is now Jesus is intentionally spreading it to the Gentiles to whom it had not previously been offered with such publicity. The Gentile inclusion that had been referenced and promised throughout the Old Testament is now in full force. Because Jesus is feeding with this bread, even the Gentiles. And there are blessings in the feeding. It's not just about the tangible bread. Because in these feedings, Jesus nourishes his people. He is the bread offered. He is the bread given for the Jewish people. And he is the bread given for the Gentiles here in our passage. Even the Gentiles are invited to feast upon Christ. And as the Jews were demonstrated to be the people of God, as they sat down in groups before Christ along the sea, so here the Gentiles sat down in groups as the people of God, the true Israel gathered before their good shepherd who feeds them in the wilderness, just like in the prior story. And for those who feast, for those who understand this Jesus, even the wilderness, which is mentioned again here, even the wilderness is a place of great expectation. It's a place of promise. It's a place where God's people learn to depend on him, where God shows up and leads them into understanding who he is and leads them in faith and provides for them. But the disciples, will they get it? The ones who have traveled with Jesus, the ones who have spent more time with him than any, did they expect Jesus to be this nourishment in the wilderness? Will they be the ones to take hold of Jesus and to feast on him? Sadly, even at the end of our passage today, the jury is still out on what's going to happen with the disciples and whether they will understand. That's intentional on Mark's part. 
because he wants his readers to start asking those same questions. Do we understand it? Do we understand who Jesus is? Have we seen him do so many things and then just rejected it? Let's remember for ourselves. Remember God's desire to draw near and to pour grace upon grace out for his children. You may be culturally unworthy like the Gentiles. You may be as uneducated as the fishermen, disciples whom Jesus called, yet you are the exact kind of person Jesus seeks to nourish with the gift of himself. God wants to bless you in the wilderness when it seems like there is no means of provision, when it would have to be a miracle. Even there, Jesus is offered to you. Even there, your sins and death itself cannot conquer you in Jesus Christ. God pours out his blessings on those who you would least expect to receive the kingdom, even me and even you. And it is received by faith, receiving and resting upon Christ alone as he offers himself. That's the Gentile blessing. Let's look at the Jewish opposition. This comes in verses 11, 12, and 13. The Pharisees come asking for a sign. What's wrong with asking for a sign? Well, in and of itself, nothing, but because it was a normal expectation that prophets would provide evidence that they have authority from heaven. For example, Elijah, when he called down fire from heaven and burned up the sacrifice before the so-called prophets of Baal, that was a sign authenticating Elijah's ministry and proving God's authority. But why is it wrong that the Pharisees would ask for this kind of sign in this place? Well, first of all, Mark makes it quite clear that they are not coming earnestly. Mark says that they came out. Now, the ESV says the Pharisees came. But what Mark says is they came out almost with a military tone to it. They came out ready to throw punches, ready to fight. And then he tells us in verse 11 that they began to argue. They're not discussing with Jesus. They came to argue with him. And then they engaged with him in order to test him. Mark makes it really clear. They are not truly seeking a sign. They are looking for a way to disprove who Jesus is. So in this questioning to test him as they come out to argue, this questioning can appear to some to be innocent. Just asking questions. I was just wondering. They're really making statements. Beware these types of innocent questioning methods, both of the Pharisees and of the world around us so-called innocent questioning methods. Many times this sounds like it's a thoughtful line of questioning. It's usually and often designed to lead you to conclusions and to answers that go against the word of God. For example, there was a book that came out somewhere around 2010 called Love Wins by Rob Bell. He never quite comes out and says that there's no such thing as hell and everybody's going to heaven, but through these Sneaky questions, this, this line of questioning, he's just, sounds like innocent questions. But this is designed to lead you to conclusions and answers. So be careful of this sneaky kind of questioning. These Pharisees have seen signs. These Pharisees have plenty of evidence. And there are plenty of witnesses that Jesus is from heaven and that he does have authority from God, but they have hard hearts and they cannot see it. So they come demanding a sign on their terms. 
Mark placed this request of the Pharisees in the middle of sign after sign after sign that Jesus is giving. Signs of his divine authority. And it shows how blind the Pharisees are. That even the evidence of his divinity is not received by the religious leaders. And Jesus calls them this generation. This generation. He says it twice. Now, on, it, on the surface, that phrase doesn't seem very important. This generation. Well, to be called this generation in the Bible is not a good thing. There are quite a few times where those two words together are used to describe a faithless and stubborn group of people. In the story of Noah, you'll remember Noah alone was called righteous. The rest of the world, all, every intention of their heart was only evil continually, and Noah was saved from this generation. Those who were destroyed by the flood. And then we continue into the Psalms, and in Psalm 12, we see that God protects his people from this generation. This generation has prowling wicked people, and this is where vileness is exalted in Psalm 12. And then in Hebrews 3 and Psalm 95, which Hebrews 3 is quoting, it is said of fickle, faithless Israel. For 40 years I loathed that generation, God said. And he said, they are a people who go astray in their heart and they have not known my ways. Therefore, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. That is what is true of this generation. And Luke, when he tells this story, he goes so far as to say that Nineveh in the time of Jonah and the queen of the south who came to Solomon, they are going to pass judgment on the Pharisees of this generation for not understanding. And Mark also uses the phrase later in chapter 8. He calls them the adulterous and sinful generation. And then in chapter 9, he calls them, oh, faithless generation. So what, what Jesus is doing here is he's calling the Pharisees, the Jewish elite, the religious leaders, pagans. This generation, wicked in their heart. At least the pagans believed and turned to the true God in Nineveh and the queen of the south. But the people from Israel, from Israel herself, they don't even know their God when they see him before their eyes, as Mark shows us. And then Jesus groans deeply in his spirit. He is emotionally engaged. He cares for these people. He longs to see them completely restored. And he longs. He's emotionally pained by unbelief. Are we the ones that Jesus groans over because of our unbelief? May it never be so. So, when you talk to unbelievers, maybe you've heard somebody say, if God would just show up and show me a sign, then I would believe him and I would follow him. It breaks my heart when I hear people say that because what I know is that even if they saw someone rise from the dead, they would not believe. If they do not believe Moses and the prophets, they will not believe even if somebody were to rise from the dead in front of their eyes. That's what's going on with the Pharisees. Their hearts are dark. They need to be made to hear. Only the power of God can make someone able to understand and to see what a sign means. Would we not be people who harden our hearts against God? So we've seen the Gentile blessing, and here we see a sketch of the Jewish opposition represented in the Pharisees. Now let's move into Christ's warning for his people. Christ's warning is twofold. 
Beware the leaven of the Pharisees and of Herod. And then second, he warns them, remember. Beware and remember. For the disciples, he was telling them, look out, be watchful. Imagine how difficult that would be to be told by Jesus to watch out for all the religious leaders. What if I told you to watch out for everything your pastors have ever said? That's hard to think about. These are the ones who are running the synagogues, the ones in charge of the temple. And then Jesus says, watch out for them. Why? Because they are blind to who Jesus is, because they are opposed to God's kingdom in favor of their comfortable kingdom. I don't care how wise they seem, because the only true wisdom is the fear of the Lord, and that the Pharisees lack. This leaven that Jesus is referring to, the leaven that he says to watch out for, this is a reference to any opposition to the kingdom of Christ. Any opposition to Christ's reign, and it comes from both the Pharisees and from Herod. They will not humble themselves to Jesus' reign. They teach a life of legalism, and they teach people to follow their tradition, and they miss the very heart and the purpose of the law. They've seen multiple examples, multiple signs of Jesus' heavenly authority, but they will not accept them. They will not submit to who Jesus is. They are the bad shepherds who devour rather than feed the sheep that have been entrusted to them. Spoiler alert, the Pharisees will rise up with their powerful influence to turn the people against Jesus and to kill him. So Jesus is prepping the disciples now. Be ready for that kind of opposition. It should not come as a surprise that the world does not like us. And he says to beware of the legalism and the works righteousness that is being taught out there by the Pharisees. And Herod's opposition also But Jesus is also saying, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees in here, in your heart. The disciples themselves in this passage are being questioned to see if they are as bad as the Pharisees. Has the leaven gone too far? Jesus says in verses 17 and 18, are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? Did they not yet perceive or understand? They've witnessed two massive feedings of the crowds. And do they not remember as they are now arguing over a loaf of bread in the boat? Jesus had to explain parables to them on multiple occasions when the disciples should have already understood. And he has to do it again in the boat. He says, beware the leaven of the Pharisees. And they say, oh, I'm hungry. Where's the bread? And Jesus says, why are you talking about bread? First of all, if we're lacking bread, have you not seen what I can do with bread? Second of all, do you not understand that I am the bread that you need? And the leaven of the Pharisees is the infection that will seep in and infect everything. Jesus really seems to be promoting and emphasizing a thoughtful, faith-filled, intellectual engagement with who he is. He says, do you not perceive, do you not understand, using your mind, and then do you not remember? It is not our intellect alone that saves us, not at all. It is the Spirit's work, but our minds must be engaged. 
listen to Christ's instruction. You're doing that by being here right now, engaging and listening. And then choose to embrace the truth of what God's word says. And know it's true and keep it in your mind and make it important to all the decisions that you make and the way that you treat anyone. And Jesus also says, remember. For the disciples, this was a huge indictment. Do you not remember? We've been going through Mark since February. And almost every passage is a sign from God. We're teaching of Jesus on who he is. Do they not remember? Jesus is saying, look at what I've done. I've called you. I've taught you. I've done wonders. And will a boat ride with insufficient bread really derail you? Have they forgotten who is in the boat with them? Have they forgotten what Jesus did the last two times he was in the boat with them? He walked on water. And he made the storm stop last time they were in the boat. So what if they don't have bread? Doesn't Jesus know what they need? Both in body and spirit. Last week we saw how Jesus cares for the body and the soul. Don't they see his power over the natural world? Twice now multiplying bread for a multitude. No wonder Jesus in disbelief says to them, Do you not yet understand? And in the coming passages where Jesus really hones in on teaching the disciples, I'm sad to say they continue to miss it. Peter is about to rebuke Jesus when Jesus said that he had to die. The disciples still don't understand the nature of Jesus' kingdom. The disciples couldn't cast out demons. They couldn't do these these signs and these healings in chapter 9 because they tried to do it in their strength. And they didn't pray to God as they did it. The disciples dispute about who's the greatest among them, revealing that they're still fighting for worldly prestige. So what if the disciples are called to give up their whole lives for the sake of Christ, for the sake of his kingdom? And that is exactly what Christ calls them to do later in this chapter, in verse 34. With Christ's instruction to the disciples in the coming chapters, we're going to see that their teacher cares so much for their souls that he is willing to lead them to worldly death. Because he says, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Do you not yet understand, Jesus says to them, it's not about this kingdom on earth. And if you don't understand who Jesus is, then to give up your life for this kingdom is unthinkable. To surrender your life? It's crazy. We can assume Judas was sitting here listening as Jesus spoke. And we know he did not beware the leaven of the Pharisees. And that is a tragic end. That's the warning for the disciples. What's the warning for you and me? We see the blessing of what God is doing as he is growing his kingdom for all peoples. We see that there's opposition, the leaven that breaks in, that opposes what Christ is doing. Our job also is to be vigilant, to watch out for the leaven, and to remember. So let us look out. Let's look out for what's going on. Beware the leaven that is out there. And I don't just mean the blatant extremist ideas that you see in the news. These ideological opponents, the other side of the aisle ideas. That's not just what I'm talking about, though that may be part of it. 
We see the leaven of the Pharisees, the antagonism to Christ, against Christ. We see that all over the place. Any antagonism against Christ is this leaven. Don't buy into the unchristian pressure of our culture to live as the world has deigned is the good life. The American dream itself is not in and of itself a Christian pursuit. Do not let it be opposed to Christ in your life. And there's false religion. We see false religion all around us. Moralism, legalism. And we see religions that are wrong. Although the world will tell you that pluralism is fine, that all religions lead to the same place. Beware these leavens. And then there's the promotion of worldly kingdoms all around us. The way that we sell products, the way that we sell lifestyles to enhance one's value or one's pleasure, the way that we work without ceasing to build our empires and our businesses and our reputations. This promotion of worldly kingdoms will come in conflict with your pursuit of Christ's kingdom if we're not watching out. And there are all kinds of Christian-sounding excuses for disbelief. God wants us to be happy, right? There's a lie. Well, God just created me this way. There's an excuse. God hasn't given me that gift. There's another excuse. I talked with a pastor, a former pastor, recently. Um, gratefully, I can say gratefully, he was not a... Uh, a PCA pastor, uh, but it, it was a sad discussion where he said he had really just deconstructed his whole way of thinking. He was a pastor for years, and um, he had deconstructed his faith, and now he's reconstructed it. And, and what he wished is that pastors would not preach Scripture authoritatively. Instead, he wished that pastors would say, here's my opinion on this passage. It sounds, it sounds almost Christian. It sounds like it could be, oh, you know, I I see what you're saying. Maybe I shouldn't be too sure. Maybe I should ask more questions. That is undermining the authority of God's word. That is undermining what God has given to his church as the word of God proclaimed. He no longer believes that the preached word has any power or any authority. It's no longer anything to submit ourselves to. These kinds of things threaten to enter and to leaven the whole lump. Let's also look in. Because the threat is not just coming from outside of us, brothers and sisters. We are naive if we think that we do not have the leaven of the Pharisees creeping up within us as well. It sneaks into our hearts. Our hearts create these idols and these evil longings. We love evil. We each have our own version of the sinful nature, and so our specific leaven shows itself a little bit differently. So when I tell you to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees that is in your heart, you probably have things that pop into mind. You probably have things where the Spirit is growing you and convicting you and showing you ways that you too need to submit to Christ's kingdom. You know where you're not letting Christ break into that part of your heart or that part of your life. You know where you're standing your sinful ground, even as the Spirit seeks to spread Christ's reign into every corner of your heart. We hesitate to let Christ's reign break into every part of our our lives and our loves and our actions because then we'd have to surrender control 
And that's scary. And so we downplay sin sometimes. And we highlight all the other good things that we do for the kingdom. So this little sin doesn't matter so much because overall I'm good. Let's instead hate selfishness and let's hate self-rule and let's grow in holiness and submission. Sometimes we try to be intellectual in terms of worldly wisdom. We say, well, if I can just, uh, you know, use the right language and if I... um, I can bring in a few ideas from the world that'll give me more credibility with the the outside world, then then maybe I'll sound more legitimate to the world. Not that we don't try to be all things to all people and speak in ways that people would understand, but when we start playing the game, letting that thinking get into our minds, what we're doing is really caring more about what an unbelieving world thinks of us than what God thinks of us. Let's instead let truth dominate our thinking and our speech. And sometimes we are merciless and we are driven by our rights. Well, I have a right to this, so I should take it. Instead, we as Christians are enabled as a part of Christ's kingdom to be grace-filled, spirit-filled filled people who surrender things that are good for the sake of our brothers and sisters. I might have a right to this, but that doesn't mean I ought to take it. If it is good for somebody else, that I don't. We hold grudges. Do you have a right to be forgiven? Well, maybe somebody ought to forgive you. But that doesn't mean that you hold that grudge. We demand repayment. We get angry when our space is intruded or when our our boundaries are overstepped. Let's remember, we're sinners doing this life together. Let us be gracious toward one another as Christ has been gracious to us. You will be offended and you will offend people. Expect it and respond like a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. And we are self-sufficient so many times. Here's another leaven in our hearts. We should be dependent instead. We do not want to die to ourselves. We do not want to lay down our lives and we do not want to be co-sufferers with Christ. We want him to prop us up so that we become Successful, whatever that means. There are other things that we that are potential leavens, and this list could go on and on and on. We we don't like discomfort. We think that's automatically bad. We think that our feelings define what we choose to believe, or we let our feelings define what we choose to believe, and on and on. Because what we're doing is we're not submitting to the kingdom of heaven or to her king, Jesus. Because as Jesus is breaking in through his spirit, he is changing us. And so we must submit our hearts and be willing to change the way we think and change the way we act as the kingdom of God is advancing around us and in us. But it's not all bad news because when I look at this congregation, I've been so encouraged by so many ways that the kingdom of God is growing and advancing and in ways that we are being where the leaven of the Pharisees. And so I encourage you, keep being vigilant. Here are some things where I've seen we are being vigilant. You care for one another. That doesn't make sense by the world's standards. You're not just looking out for yourself. It costs money and it costs time to visit with people. It costs money and it costs time to take a meal to someone or to bring food to the Bible study. And it's a sacrifice to go and to sit and talk with people and ask them how they're doing. 
and you look out for the souls of one another. It doesn't make sense. You could be more concerned with a thousand other self-promotions, but you have sought to care for others. You invest time and energy, so many of you, into being in God's house on the Lord's day, morning and evening. It's tiring. It's inconvenient. It doesn't make any sense by the world standards because you're giving up business time. You're giving up work time. And it, but what you're doing by being here, by surrendering your whole day to the Lord, is you are killing the leaven of the Pharisees that's telling you to grow your kingdom. And by worshiping with Christ's prayers, you're choosing a really unglamorous, ground-level church planting option. There are much more glamorous, put-together churches with much better preachers, much more in terms of community and options, programs. But you have a passion to see the kingdom grow here in really tough soil on which we stand. And one of my favorite things is that this is a congregation that talks about important things, things of the Lord. And you hold on to the hope of this kingdom that Christ is growing. So let us keep doing that and being aware. And let us remember what Christ has done. As the disciples forgot, let us not forget the miracles of Jesus. Let's not forget his compassionate death on the cross. Let's not forget his powerful resurrection. Let's not forget the hope-filled ascension. And let's remember what Christ has done here even at Christ Presbyterian Church over the last year, how he has been faithful. Let's recall what Christ has done in our individual lives. Have you responded to the Spirit's call to follow Jesus? Praise him for calling you and for giving you that life. He is teaching you and he is with you. Remember those things. Is the Spirit knocking on your heart now for the first time? Look at his mercy and compassion and grace and reaching out to a sinner like you. Let none of us push King Jesus aside. Let's let him in. Let's let his kingdom grow in our hearts so that the leaven of the Pharisees may suffocate and die and never again become desirable to us. Thank God for Jesus Christ, for the ways that he's working in our hearts. Would we be willing participants as we submit ourselves to the truth of his word. Let's pray. Thank you, gracious God, for seeking our good. Thank you for sending Jesus Christ. Would we not forget who he is and what he has done and what you continue to do by the spirit of Christ in us? Would we beware? As Jesus prayed, would you lead us not into temptation? The temptation of the leaven of the Pharisees and the world, would it not creep in and would we not let it grow within us? But instead, would we put to death the deeds of the flesh by your spirit? It's for the sake of Jesus and in his name we pray. Amen.